Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is William Sink, and this is Christogen here on Talk Show. It is Friday, November 25th, 2011. I got a few things to say before I start the program tonight. The, um, I, I made a post, an open letter post, to many people who have friended me on Facebook. And, and um, some of them come here. Some of them, I mean, they're, they're all probably good people, but I don't think some people get it. But my point to the post that I made was that Christian identity has to define itself. And we can't define ourselves as wishy-washy, stick-in-the-mud, let's-all-get-along universalists. We can't do that. that. That's not the direction that Christian identity can take and survive. That is not a step towards truth. If we claim to seek the word of God and we claim to be truth seekers, in my humble opinion, Universalism can absolutely not be part of the equation. It must be excluded. I am not going to suffer universalists in my company. And I made this post to challenge certain people on their relationship with Eli James, who has taken a very strong universalist position. How could you claim to be Christian identity? I don't care if you support Eli James. I don't care if you listen to Eli James. What I wonder about is how you could claim to be Christian identity and do so. And if you're doing that, I really don't want to associate with you. That, that's the point I'm at right now. We need a clear racial message. We don't need this wishy-washy, let's all just get along bullshit that we hear in the mainstream. That's for the mainstream. The word of God says that every plant which my heavenly father did not plant shall be rooted up. Everybody not written in the book of life is going into the lake of fire. That fire is not a cleansing fire. That fire is a destructive fire. That's easily proven with the scripture. If hell and death and the false prophet and the beast can be cleaned up in the lake of fire, then I would admit it's a cleansing fire. But the truth is that there's no way hell, death, the beast, and the false prophet can be cleaned up. The lake of fire is not a cleansing fire. The lake of fire is an allegory for a cessation of existence. Now, however you want to imagine that that cessation of existence takes place, the scripture says that all our enemies that every bastard, that all things which offend, that every plant that Yahweh did not plant, and they're walking around all around us, they're all headed for the lake of fire. I'm not a prophet. I don't know how it's going to happen. I can't guarantee anything except that the word of God says it's going to happen. I'm not going to compromise that. And if anybody has friended me on Facebook, if anybody pretends to, to be in, in my satellite, if anybody pretends that they're going to be my friend and agree with that bullshit, I don't want you. I don't want anything to do with you. I don't want you on my forums. I don't want you listening to my programs. You're a universalist. Go join the Catholic Church. 
go become a Baptist. Go listen to Eli James. That's the way it is. I don't want nothing to do with you. You're compromising the word of God in my purview. I want nothing to do with you. That's these people on Facebook just don't get it. They just don't understand that. They're, they have this attitude, let's get along because we all have to get along. No, we don't have to get along. We have to please God and not men. That's the way it is. If you don't like that, I don't want you listening to me. I don't want to be your friend. Screw Facebook. I don't care. That's the way it is. And if you still listen to me after that rant, well, then I respect you. And if you understand that scripture, then we can be friends indeed. And brotherly love comes first. But brotherly love can only come with a will to be obedient to God. You could have all the brotherly love in the world. If you don't will to be obedient to the word of God, you don't love your brother. You hate your brother. Yet you might you might put on a pretense of love, but you sure as you sure as hell don't have it. And with that, I'll start on on the program. Mark chapters twelve and thirteen. I, I debated over whether or not I was going to get into Mark 13 or not. And, and I, I would like to, it, it's th this um, would be a very long program. I, I can't finish Mark 13 tonight. I, I don't like to leave in the middle of a chapter. But then I looked at my notes from Matthew 24, which, of course, I leaned on heavily. And, and, and most of this program in, in Mark 13 will reflect that. And, and a lot of it in Mark 12, because Mark simply says a lot of the same things that Matthew said. He says a lot of them in a slightly different way, but that these um, that these gospels are are absolutely parallel, and and um, that there's no way I, I I could avoid presenting the same material twice. I have to present the same material twice because the gospel presents the same material twice, and and when I do the gospel of Luke, which I hope to do maybe um, next spring, I'm going to present. A lot of the same material a third time. That's just the way it is. That's why we have three synoptic gospels. We need to hear it three times. In fact, uh, after after understanding some of the people that I dealt with today, we don't need to hear it three times. A lot of us need to hear it three thousand times. In Mark chapter eleven, we saw the cursing. of the fig tree, which we related to the parable of the fig tree and the explanation of the fruitlessness of Christ's mission in Jerusalem. We then related how this was the final fulfillment of the dispersion of the bad figs of Jeremiah chapter 24, which is proven when comparing the language of Jeremiah to the language of Christ concerning Jerusalem in his prophecy of its impending destruction, especially as it's recorded in Luke chapter 21. We will discuss that at length here again next week, because that's when we'll get to that part of Mark 13. It's the subject of the later half of Mark 13. All of these prophecies and parables about the fig tree, about the destruction of Jerusalem, they are all 
part of a related theme, and so is the parable of the vineyard, which we are about to read here in Mark chapter 12. Don't let anybody fool you. The bad figs are all around us. Mark chapter 12, verse 1. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, and dug a vat, and built a tower, and let it out to husbandmen. At the appropriate, I'm, I'm sorry. And he traveled abroad, and he sent a servant to the husbandman at the appropriate time, in order that he would receive from the husbandman from the fruits of the vineyard. And taking him, they cudgeled him and sent him away empty. And again he sent them to another servant. He sent to them another servant. And him they hit on the head, and they dishonored him, or, or, or they abused him. And he sent another, and him they slew, and many others, some then being cudgeled, but some were beaten, but some being slain. Yet he had one beloved son. He sent him to them last saying that they shall respect my son. Now, you know, a lot of people today pretend to be prophets of God, and they're fools. As Paul says in Hebrews, in many times, in many ways, in, in past times, Yahweh spoke to us through the prophets. Today he speaks to us through the son, Joshua Christ, the last prophet. Most of all, the special son. And that's exactly what this parable is also relating. He sent him to them last, saying that they shall respect my son. But those husbandmen said to themselves that this is the heir. Come, we should kill him, and the inheritance shall be ours. And taking him, they killed him and cast him outside of the vineyard. So what shall the master of the vineyard do? He shall come and destroy those husbandmen and let the vineyard out to others. This parable is also found at Matthew 21:33. If the people in power in Judea were truly the children of God, if they were Israelites, they too would have been the servants of God. They would too would have been heirs to the kingdom, and they would they would have heard the voice of their master. As Christ told many of the leaders of the Judeans, recorded in John chapter 10, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. They did not believe him because they were not his sheep in the first place. They never were his sheep. Being tenants, they were merely, or husbandmen, they were merely allowed to run the vineyard by its rightful owner, who is Yahweh. So we have the Edomite rulers of Judea. They are the husbandmen who merely rented out the vineyard. While many of the leaders were Israelites, according to the Apostle John, chapter 12, verses 42 and 43, we see that the Apostle writes, Nevertheless, among the chief rulers, also many believed on him, meaning Christ. But because of the Pharisees, the people who didn't believe him because he, that they weren't his sheep, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. 
Additionally, the high priests themselves at the time were of the Sadducees, a group which was much more hateful of Christ and Christians than even the Pharisees were, and a group so vile that they were rarely even mentioned by the apostles. Christ never tried to really correct the Sadducees. The Sadducees sent people to him to question him. Never addressed them. That the Sadducees were Edomites is fully evident, and, and they were the high priests, which is evident in Acts chapter 5 and Acts 4. That, the, that they were Edomites is fully evident in the Greek of Acts chapter 4 in verses 6 and 23, where the meanings of several words and the distinction they make in the narrative are glossed over in all translations. I'm going to quote the Christogonian New Testament, Acts chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. And there was on the next day a gathering of them, the leaders and the elders and the scribes in Jerusalem. And Hannes, the high priest, and Caiaphas and Johannes, or John, and Alexandrus, and as many as were of the race of the high priest, and standing them in the midst, meaning Peter and John, because they absconded Peter and John for healing a man and, and for preaching in the name of Christ, and standing them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name have you done this? And contrast that, that, that line, as many as were of the race of the high priest, and that Greek word is a word that means race, with Acts 4.23, where it says, And being released, they went to their own countrymen and reported as much as the high priests and the elders said to them. That there is a sharp contrast in the language here, where we see that the apostles saw their countrymen as distinct from as many as were of the race of the high priest, which were the Edomites. There are many other ways in which we may see that these Judeans, which Christ is talking about in this parable, are indeed the bad fake Jews of Jeremiah chapter 24. Here we shall compare a statement in Jeremiah chapter 29 with a statement in Luke chapter 21. Jeremiah 29, 17 through 19 states, Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, Behold, I will send upon them the sword, the famine, and the pestilence, and will make them like vile figs that cannot be eaten. They are so evil. And I will persecute them with the sword and with the famine and with the pestilence, and will deliver them to be removed to all the kingdoms of the earth, to be a curse and an astonishment and a hissing and a reproach among all the nations where I have driven them. Because they have not hearkened to my words, saith Yahweh, which I sent unto them by my servants, the prophets, rising up early and sending them, but ye would not hear, saith Yahweh. Now, reading Jeremiah chapters 24 through 29, we see that this is addressed to the remnant of Jerusalem. It's addressed to those in Jerusalem who remain behind, as Jeremiah 24 states explicitly, and as, as I explained here last week. It's to Hezekiah and the princes are all the chief men, which is what that means, of Jerusalem, and those remaining in Jerusalem, those who were not taken by the Babylonians, and those Judeans who sought refuge in Egypt. So there are many Judeans left behind. 
who were to be made like the vile figs. They weren't vile figs to start out with. They became vile figs through race mixing with the Canaanites and the Edomites. Luke chapter 21, verses 20 through 24, we see talking about the forecast destruction of Jerusalem. That the language concerning the people who refused to hear the Christ is the same as the language concerning the dispersion of the enemies of God in Jeremiah chapter 24 and Jeremiah chapter 29. Now there's a certain Christian identity, well he calls himself a Christian identity preacher, teaching that these bad figs don't exist. Well here they are in Luke chapter 21. But when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, then you know that her desolation has come near. These are the people of the fig tree that withered, that Christ cursed, that no fruit would be left on forever. Then those in Judea must flee into the mountains, and those in the midst must leave the land, and those in the countryside must not enter into her, because these are the days of vengeance. Now God punishes his people. Yahweh punishes his people, but he doesn't take vengeance on his people. He only takes vengeance on his enemies. There's mercy and punishment. There's no mercy and vengeance. By which all the things written are to be fulfilled. Woe to those having conceived, and to those with sucklings in those days. For there shall be great violence upon the earth, and wrath for this people. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and they shall be taken away captive in all nations, and Jerusalem shall be tread upon by the heathens until the time of the heathens should be fulfilled. Now, of course, this is not the dispersion of true Judah. The dispersion of true Judah happened 600 years before this, and parts of it happened over 700 years before this, when the Assyrians took away 46 fenced cities and most of the people of Judah and Benjamin, and left only the inhabitants of Jerusalem. This is an Assyrian inscription. I think it's the black obelisk. I might be mistaken. It's been a while since I've read about it. it. It's um. It has the actual profession of the king of Assyria that he left King Hezekiah of Judah caged like a bird in a cage. And and he's actually it's a face saving inscription because he he explains how he carried off the forty six fence cities of Judah, how he carried off hundreds of thousands of people into captivity. But he couldn't conquer Jerusalem. Yahweh wouldn't let him conquer Jerusalem. So to so to save face he actually said that he left the king of Jerusalem caged up like a bird in a cage. In other words, he couldn't take the city and, and he had to brag about doing something. That, that's political spin, right? Well, well, that was the real deportation of the real tribe of Judah. Now, there was a remnant left. But all those 46 cities full of Judahites, they were divorced too by Yahweh. Just like the ten northern tribes of Israel were put out of his presence. These of the remnant, we have among the remnant those stiff-necked Judahites who would not heed Yahweh, who were being punished for the sins of their ancestors and the crimes of their ancestors, and who would become like vile figs. 
And we see that those are the people that race mixed with the Edomites and rejected Christ. In Luke chapter 21, verses 20 through 24, where he said that his enemies shall be taken captive into all nations, here Yahshua is predicting the destruction of Jerusalem, which took place in 70 A.D., that was a time of vengeance concerning all things written, which would fulfill all things written concerning Jerusalem. For we must always make our biblical interpretations in context. That is when those things were fulfilled in 70 AD. What things were written concerning Jerusalem? The things written, which Joshua refers to, are those found in the prophecy of Jeremiah. The permanent destruction of the city prophesied in Jeremiah chapter 19, for instance. And, as we just plainly saw, the dispersion of those Judeans who were made to be like bad figs. Those who race mixed with the Canaanites and Edomites prophesied in Jeremiah chapters 24 and 29. All of these curses upon those who rejected Yahweh and his Christ Assure us today that there certainly cannot be any so-called good Jews. They are all to be rejected by us, every one of them, without exception, as they were rejected by Yahshua Christ, our God, because they rejected him. The bad figs sure as hell do exist, no matter what the clowns Eli James and Lee Jandabauer claim. And scripture proves it. Without a doubt. Mark chapter 12, verse 10. Have you not even read the scripture, the stone which the builders have rejected? This has come to be for the head cornerstone. By Yahweh this has been done, and it is a wonder in our eyes. And they sought to seize him. Yet they feared the crowd, for they knew that he had spoken the parable against them, and leaving him, they departed. They would have killed him then if they could. This is a verbatim quote of Psalm 118.22. The stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner. This must have greatly vexed and provoked the Pharisees, knowing that Christ cited it in reference to himself. Of course, visions of the Great Pyramid, which is without its capstone, since the most ancient times cannot be neglected. There's a story there, even if we do not know it perfectly. The builders are not the Pharisees, the Sadducees, or, of course, any of the Edomite bastards. Rather, the builders were, allegorically, those Israelites of the Judges period who at first rejected Yahweh as their king. They demanded an earthly king instead. The primary lesson for us in Christ is that only Yahweh himself is fit to be our king. All men have failed and will. 
It is at this point in the corresponding version of the account given in the Gospel of Matthew that Christ tells the Judeans that the kingdom of Yahweh shall be taken from you and given to a nation producing its fruits, which we see in Matthew 21, verse 43. It is evident in the prophecies of Daniel that the 70 weeks kingdom, as it may be called, which was in Judea from the time of the rebuilding of the temple to the time of Christ, was only meant to be a temporary kingdom. It was only meant to last until his passion and his reconciliation with the children of Israel. Commenting on that passage in Matthew, it was demonstrated that the kingdom of Yahweh would be restored to the Israelites of the much earlier dispersions. That's a matter of prophecy. There should be no doubt about it. At Micah chapter 4, verses 6 to 8, it says in part, In that day, saith Yahweh, will I assemble her that halteth. And I will gather her that is driven out, and her that I have afflicted. And I will make her that halted a remnant, and her that was cast far off a strong nation. And Yahweh shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth, even forever. And thou, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee it shall come, even the first dominion. The kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. The further the children of Israel had migrated from the nations of their captivity, the stronger a nation they became. Those who stayed on the steppes of Russia, those who stayed in Eastern Europe, those who stayed in the Mediterranean Basin became a remnant indeed. The further we departed from Palestine, the bigger and stronger a nation we became. The kingdom of God is indeed delivered to them, yet not at once. Isaiah 66, 8 says of this same thing, Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day, or shall a nation be born at once? We see it took 2,500 years, 2,520 years from the first Assyrian deportations to the founding of the United States. For as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. In other words, the process of Israel becoming many nations is found in the travails of the Assyrian captivity. The Saxon people are the children of Israel. And they send to him certain of the Pharisees, and of the Herodians, in order that they may entrap him in speech. This the Jews love to do to their enemies, to harass them with deceitful questions, trying to trip them up, hoping to get them to contradict or perjure themselves. There is nothing worse than getting drilled by a conniving Jew lawyer, especially when you are in a position where you have to deal with it as a matter of law. 
Today, a Jew lurks around every corner trying to entrap white Christians with their speech, that they may brand them as haters or catch them in some perceived violation. While the translation is sometimes contested, the sense given in the Septuagint agrees, and therefore one of my favorite passages in the King James Version pertaining to this subject is from Isaiah chapter 29, verses 20 and 21, where it says, For the terrible one is brought to naught, and the scorner is consumed, and all that watch for iniquity are cut off that make a man an offender for a word, and lay a snare for him that reproves in the gate, and turns aside the just for a thing of naught. Don't dismiss those men who bring you the word of God. Don't dismiss those men who are attempting to correct your sins. We see in this day and age that the Jews when Christians attempt to uphold the laws of Yahweh or God, when we speak out against sexual deviancy, especially sexually deviant marriages, race mixing and other things like that, we are branded as haters. We try to reprove and negate. And the Jew makes a man an offender for those words. They call it hate crimes. Mark 12, verse 14. And coming, they say to him, Teacher, we know that you were true, and in you there is no thought for anyone. For you do not look at the stature of men. The stature or the status of men, as James explains in chapter 2 of his epistle. But by truth, you teach the way of God. Is it lawful to give tax to Caesar or not? Should we give or should we not give? But he, meaning Christ, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you try me? Bring to me a denarian. Point at the time. That I may see. And they brought it. And he says to them, Whose image is this? And the inscription. Then they said to him, Caesar's. And Yahshua said to them, Render to Caesar the things of Caesar, and to Yahweh the things of Yahweh. And they marveled at him. So many people, even in Christian identity, simply cannot accept the precepts found in this passage. Yes, we know the taxes of the imperialistic tyrannies that we live under. They are oppressive, there's no doubt. In many ways, Imperial Rome was far more oppressive than Imperial America is now. But if you open your wallet and you look at the bills it contains, they are all inscribed, Federal Reserve Note. Therefore, according to the words of Christ here, those bills really belong to the Federal Reserve. They really belong to the Jewish bankers whom our fathers were foolish enough to grant such privileges as the ability to have them printed and put into circulation. So you pay your taxes. A Christian must realize that if he is blessed with having money, it will come as a curse to him 
if he does not do right by his blessing. We cannot serve both God and mammon or riches. Therefore, Christians should have no care for riches. Money comes and money goes. It's nice to have, and there are times when we need it, and when we need it, we use it. But when we are attached to the material world, when we are attached to the riches to the riches of this world, we care too much for our money. And then we despise those who want to take it from us. But in fact, it's theirs in the first place, as Christ just demonstrated. In Matthew chapter 6, Yahshua said, For this reason I say to you, do not care for your life, what you should eat or what you should drink, nor for your body, what you should wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of heaven, that they do not sow, nor harvest, nor gather into storehouses, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than them? Who caring from among you is able to add one cubit to his stature? And what do you care about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They do not toil nor spin yarn, but I say to you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was clothed as one of these. Now if the grass of the field exists today and tomorrow, it is cast into a furnace, and Yahweh clothes it thusly. How much more you, who have little faith? Therefore you should not have a care, saying, What should we eat, or what should we drink, or what should we wear? For all these things that he didn't seek after. Indeed, your heavenly Father knows that you have need of all these things. But you seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, you should not have care for tomorrow, for tomorrow shall care for itself. Sufficient for the day are its vices. That doesn't mean that we should throw all of our food away. It means that Yahweh will provide us with a way to get more, because we should be concerned with building his kingdom and caring for our brethren. If we seek the will of God, God will supply us with the means that we need in order that we may be fed, clothed, and sheltered. And we shall not have to seek the riches of the world to care for money. That is a Christian promise, although at times we all may be tested, as Job was also tested. Pray that you learn and follow his example when and if such a test comes upon you. Care for riches. The riches will take care of themselves. And the Sadducees said to him, who say that there is not to be a resurrection. And they questioned him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a brother of one should die and leaves a wife and should not leave a child, that his brother should take the wife and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers, and the first had taken a wife, and dying had not left offspring. That word is seed, by the way. And the second had taken her, and he died, not leaving offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven had not left offspring. 
Last of all, the wife also died. In the resurrection, which of them shall be the wife? For the seven had her as a wife. The Sadducees, as I discussed at great length in the commentary on Matthew chapter 22, given here some months ago, the Sadducees rejected all things spiritual. There are many Sadducees today, even in Christian identity. Josephus, at Antiquities chapter 13, 173, says of them that, and I quote, And for the Sadducees, they take away fate and say that there is no such thing, and that the events of human affairs are not at its disposal. And let me say that in the language of Josephus, he is saying that the Sadducees deny predestination. But they suppose that all our actions are in our own power. Humanism, the idea that God has no role in our lives. So that we are ourselves the causes of what is good. And receive what is evil from our own folly. That life is only cause and effect. However, I have given a more exact account of these opinions in the second book of the Judean War. And I will also quote that. In Wars of the Judeans... Book 2, 164 and 165, Joseph is said, But the Sadducees take away fate entirely and suppose that God is not concerned in our doing or not doing what is evil. And they say that to act what is good or what is evil is it men's own choice. And that the one or the other belongs so to everyone, that they may act as they please. They also take away the belief of the immortal duration of the soul and the punishments and rewards in Hades. And we see Joseph betray something else there. We see that Josephus talks about the punishments and rewards in Hades, which is a doctrine of the Pharisees. And so we know punishments and rewards in hell which the Catholic Church picked up on later, are actually a doctrine of the Pharisees. Just because it's opposed to the doctrines of the Sadducees does not make it right. All Israel shall be saved. Acts chapter 5, verse 17, shows that the high priests at the time, who were also the high priests who condemned Christ, were of the Sadducees. They rejected everything spiritual. They rejected the idea of punishment and reward. They rejected the idea of an afterlife. Once you reject all those things, you could do what you please. That's where Jewish rationalism comes from. That's where humanism, secular humanism, and situation ethics come from. The thinking of the Sadducees. And we see them permeating our society today. Ever since the Jew was let out of the pit in the French Revolution. Acts chapter 5.17 affirms that the Sadducees were the high priests of the time. And I quote, Then stood up the high priest and all those with him, being of the sect of the Sadducees, filled with jealousy. It is, however, obvious from the testimony of Josephus that the Sadducees would not have had the ability to condemn Christ because they did not, even though they were high priests, they were outnumbered by Pharisees severely. The high priests at the time were being appointed by the Romans. 
They could not have had the ability to condemn Christ if it were not for the approval of at least many of the Pharisees. At Acts chapter 23, we see Paul was able to cause strife and division between the Pharisees and the Sadducees at the council by loudly asserting that he was being tried for a contention over the resurrection of the dead. And Acts 23.8 says, For indeed the Sadducees say that there is not to be a resurrection, nor are there angels, nor a spirit. But the Pharisees confessed both things. The Sadducees attempted to take advantage of the law found in Deuteronomy 25.5 when they questioned Christ here, because they thought that they could use it to entrap him. That law says, If brethren dwell together and one of them die and have no child, the wife of the dead shall not marry unto a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to him to wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother unto her. But those who disbelieve the possibility of the resurrection to the kingdom of Yahweh, how could they ever properly understand the kingdom of Yahweh? And like the Pharisees, it is evident that neither did the Sadducees really know the scripture. Matthew 12:24. Yahshua said to them, Aren't you for this reason deceived, knowing the writings, not knowing the writings, nor the power of Yahweh? For when they should arise from among the dead, they shall neither marry, nor do they give in marriage, but they shall be as the angels in the heavens or the messengers in heaven. Now, nowhere that I can imagine in the Old Testament as we know it today can this be found in the Scripture. It must have been found at the time of Christ. There is one place where I found it. In the writings that the Dead Sea Scrolls help to prove that at least a large portion of them as we know them as we know them now, were indeed extant, and they were read, and they were accepted in Judea at the very time of Christ, and which the apostles themselves both quoted from directly or alluded to frequently in their epistles. And those writings are contained today in the book known to us as 1 Enoch. And here I shall quote from 1 Enoch, chapter 15, Verses 1 through 9 from the translation by R.H. Charles. And he answered and said to me, and I heard his voice, Fear not, Enoch, thou righteous man and scribe of righteousness. Approach here and hear my voice. And go, say to the watchers of heaven, the angels, as we can show in Daniel chapter 4, I believe, who have sent thee to intercede for them. You should intercede for men and not men for you. Wherefore have you left the high, holy, and eternal heaven and laid with women and defiled yourselves with the daughters of men and taken to yourselves wives and done like the children of the earth and begotten giants as your sons? And though you were holy, spiritual, living the eternal life, you have defiled yourselves with the blood of women and have begotten children with the blood of flesh. And as the children of men have lusted after their flesh and blood, as those do who die and perish. Therefore have I given them wives also, that they might impregnate them and beget children by them. 
that thus nothing might be wanting them on the earth. But you were formerly spiritual, living the eternal life, and immortal for all generations of the world. And therefore I have not appointed wives for you. For as for the spiritual ones of heaven, in heaven is their dwelling. And now the giants who are produced from the spirits and flesh shall be called evil spirits upon the earth, and on the earth shall be their dwelling. Evil spirits have proceeded from their bodies because they were born from men. And from the holy watchers is their beginning and primal origin. They shall be evil spirits on the earth, and evil spirits shall they be called. Let me tell you as an aside here, that the Apostle John in his first epistle explains that there are spirits born of earth and spirits born of God. And the spirits born of earth are evil spirits. Only our race was born from Yahweh. That's the only race we have explicit proof of its origins in the scripture. Now we must be careful with the Enoch literature especially since we have only a few copies of fragments that can be shown to be of any great antiquity, which are those found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. And also because one Enoch is not really even a single book. It's actually separate books which were written at diverse times, and they were concatenated, they were put together, in some much later period. Yet here it is clear as to what Christ was referring to. The angels in heaven do not cohabit and multiply, even though they obviously have the ability and once made a conscious decision to use that ability here on earth. There's the distinction. The angels in heaven, as Christ says in his answer to the Pharisees, do not cohabit and multiply. They do have that ability here on earth. We see it in Enoch. We see it in the words of Christ. Where he qualifies his statement with the words, in heaven they don't do that. Here it may also be argued that Adam and Eve were indeed virgins in their own pre-fallen state. However, other scriptures indeed demonstrate that. Mark 12, verse 26. But concerning the dead they are raised, that they are raised, have you not read in the book of Moses at the bramble bush, at the burning bush, how Yahweh had spoken to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Yahweh is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly deceived. Yahweh professes to be the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob in Exodus chapter 3 at verses 6 and 15. We have seen from Josephus that the Sadducees believe that the soul died along with the body, that there is no spiritual afterlife. Here, we see that they were wrong. If Yahweh is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and if Yahweh is not the God of the dead, but of the living, 
it naturally follows that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are not dead. They are living and living in the spirit. That invisible world the scriptures sometimes mention, but which we, of course, presently do not see. We will find it explicitly expressed in this manner, as Christ said, that Yahweh, uh, I'm sorry, we will not find it explicitly expressed in this manner, as Christ said, that Yahweh is not the God of the dead, but of the living. In the Old Testament, as we know it, Yet we do find similar statements in certain apocryphal books, such as 4 Maccabees, which I will quote here. 4 Maccabees, chapter 7, verses 18 and 19. I must say that this is my own translation from the Greek. But they who have thought for piety with all their heart, these alone are able to master the emotions of the flesh. They who believe in God do not die. Likewise, neither do our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. For they live with God. As Paul says, when he dies, he knew that he was going to be with God. Now we know where Paul got it from. 4 Maccabees, chapter 16, verse 25. Again, this is my own translation. And then they also saw this, that they who die on account of God, they live with God, just as Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the patriarchs. So also we have the event known as the Transfiguration on the Mount, which shows us the same thing. And the profession by Enoch, which the Apostle Jude quoted, that behold, Yahweh comes with ten thousands saints. Yet those who were not of us, those who were not Adamic people, they don't have that spirit. These are those who were twice dead, as Jude calls them. They have no hope to see the kingdom of heaven, as Christ explains in John chapter 3, because they are not born from above. Therefore, you will not find non-Adamites in the kingdom of heaven in any capacity. Do not be deceived. Yahshua Christ himself said at John 3.3, 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a man should be born from above, he is not able to see the kingdom of Yahweh. We have life because we have that spirit which is from of heaven which Yahweh imparted to Adamic man, which John explains in the third chapter of his first epistle. And which according to Paul's enigmatic description in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, is a part of our genetic heritage, which is what distinguishes us as being born from above. If one is born from above in the spirit, he cannot die, because he has that spirit of the Almighty God within him. His seed is in him, as John tells us. Jude and Peter, along with many other scriptures, testify that only our white race has that spirit. And because only we were born from above, only we shall see the kingdom of heaven 
I don't care what Eli James says. He's wrong, and he's lying. Joshua Christ said, only those born from above shall see the kingdom of heaven. I challenge all the clowns to admit whether the world's other races are born from above or born from the earth. Mark 12, verse 28. And coming forth, one of the scribes, having heard their disputing, seeing that he answered them well, questioned him. What is the first of all commandments? Joshua replied, The first is, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. Nobody else's. There is only one Yahweh. And you shall love Yahweh your God from your whole heart and from your whole soul and from your whole mind and from your whole strength. Second is this. You shall love him near to you. And that's the literal translation of the Greek word which the AV renders neighbor. You shall love him near to you as yourself. No other commandment is greater than this. Let me say that the Hebrew word translated neighbor, where those passages quote, is a word which means one who is graze, grazes and is nurtured up together with you. Your neighbor can only be a fellow sheep, period. Verse 32, and the scribe said to him, good teacher, with truth you have spoken that he is one. And there is not another except him. And for which to love him with, from the whole heart and from the whole conscience and from the whole strength. And for which to love him near to you as yourself is greater than every whole burnt offering and sacrifice. In other words, love your brother. You can't justify yourself through rituals. Verse 34. And Yahshua seeing him that he replied sensibly said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of Yahweh. And no longer, no one any dared, and anyone dared to question him. When we submit ourselves to the will of God to seek after and follow his will, then we seek to establish the kingdom of heaven, being bestowed with his blessings. If we seek instead our own will and our own righteousness, we are lost in the world and find nothing but trouble. If we seek universalism, we're in deep trouble. Mark 12, verse 35. And responding, Yahshua said, teaching in the temple, how did the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself said by the Holy Spirit, Yahweh said to my master, sit at my right hand until when I shall place your enemies beneath your feet. David himself declares him master. How is he his son? And the large crowd heard him gladly. The quote is from Psalm 110. I have interpreted the two occurrences of the Greek word kurios, which are usually translated Lord, right? Yahweh said to my master. It usually says, like in the King James, the Lord said to my Lord. I've interpreted them, interpreted them to say Yahweh and master because in the Hebrew manuscripts, which this quotes at Psalms 110, the two, Greek, the two Hebrew words are 
Yahweh and the Tetragrammaton, and Adon, which is a word which means in Hebrew, master or lord. It's kind of a synonym to Baal, but it's different. It's Adon, and it's the Greek word. It's the word which we get the Greek Adonis from, and I believe the word which we get the Germanic word Odin from. Adon, master or lord. Therefore, they must be distinguished. Both words were rendered kurios in the Septuagint Greek, which the New Testament in the Greek often follows when quoting from the Old Testament. It says it that way in the Septuagint because the name Yahweh was already banned by the religious authorities in Judea before the time of Christ. The first word, Lord, refers to Yahweh. The second word refers to a master. Yahweh said to my master, David's talking. Yahweh said to my master, sit at my right hand. So David is calling his son, the Messiah, the promised Messiah that was to come from his seed. David's calling his son, master. That's a Christian paradox. That's why Yahshua brought it up here. That's why he challenges the crowd with it. It's a Christian paradox, and it proves that Yahshua Christ is Yahweh having come in the form of a man. He is the Father, and he is the Son, and he, that is the only way in which he could be both David's descendant and David's master. That is the only way, as the Revelation attests, where it also agrees with the prophets, that Yahshua Christ could be both the root and the offspring of David as we see in Revelation 5, 5, and in Revelation 22, 16. That is the only way that Yahshua Christ could be the future root of Jesse, long after Jesse had departed this world, which we see in Isaiah eleven ten, and in Romans fifteen twelve. That is the only way that he could claim to have been the planter, of the wheat in the parable of the wheat and the tares. It is the only way Paul could have asserted that the rock in the desert which followed the Israelites to the Exodus was indeed Christ, because Christ is Yahweh. Yahweh followed the Israelites in the Exodus. 1 Corinthians 10.4 The Pharisees obviously did not understand this, and therefore they could not respond. The Dead Sea Scrolls version of Isaiah agrees with the Masoretic text fully where it reads in Isaiah 9-6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, Yahshua Christ. Must be Yahweh come in the flesh. So the Pharisees were without excuse. The deity of Christ was argued from the beginning of Christianity, and many modern-day Christians still do not understand this. Mark 12, verse 38. And in his teaching he said, Beware of those scribes who desire to walk about in robes and greetings in the marketplaces. And the first benches in the assembly halls, and the best seats at the dinners, 
They are devouring the house of widows, and with pretense make prayers at length. They shall receive a greater judgment. They have all the status of an office and a name, but in reality, they are consuming the kingdom of God rather than building it. Today we have that same thing. We have it in the Catholic and in all of the other so-called mainstream, mainstream so-called church organizations. Professional priests who live off of the fat of the people, they wax themselves wealthy and do nothing in return but decorate themselves with pomp and majesty. We even have that same thing very often in Christian identity where people should know better. These are the petty fiefdoms, and people get caught up in names and organizations, making ranks and making distinctions for themselves, and elevating themselves above others, mocking the world they pretend to be dignities. These things are not Christian. True Christians must love their brethren and most of all defend their race and forget about trying to mimic the world. Yahshua Christ is our only God, our only leader, our only ruler, and we are all his brethren. We are all equals. Some of us have unequal gifts, but we are all alike and should not seek to rule over one another and should not seek titles and positions to exalt ourselves above our brethren. Mark 12, verse 41. And being seated opposite the treasury, he observed how the crowd casts coin into the treasury, and many wealthy had cast much. And coming, one poor widow had cast two lepta, and Mark translates it, which is a quadrant. A quadrant was the smallest Roman coin. And summoning his students, he said to them, Truly I say to you that this poor widow is cast more than all those casting into the treasury. For they all is cast from out of their abundance, but she from her want has cast all whatever she had, her whole substance. Yahweh measures our gifts, not according to what we give, but according to how we give in proportion to our ability to give. This elderly woman could hardly give it all, yet she gave all that she had. If our gifts and our labors are in accordance with our abilities, they shall surely be rewarded. Yet, if you give even beyond your abilities, you shall be rewarded greatly. But woe to those who give only in pretense or who count the numbers and give in a niggardly manner. Speaking about giving, I speak not only about money. There is much more than a man could do for his kin, for his race, and for the sake of the gospel than merely money. We all have gifts from God. And we should seek to use them for the benefit of the kingdom people as much as we can. Mark chapter 12 paralleled much of what is contained in Matthew's, Matthew chapters 21 and 22. The events of Matthew chapter 23, Yahshua's great diatribe against the hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees, was left unrecorded by Mark. The next chapter 
Mark chapter 13 parallels Matthew chapter 24 and Luke chapter 21, the great discourse of the time of the end. We're going to start Mark chapter 13, but we will finish it next week. And upon his going out from the temple, one of his students says to him, Teacher, behold, what quality stones and what quality buildings. Yahshua says to him, You see these great buildings? By no means should it be left here a stone upon a stone, which would not be thrown down. Here Christ forecasts the destruction of Jerusalem, which was to come nearly 40 years later. At the end of Matthew chapter 23, which Mark did not record, Christ exclaimed to the Judeans, Behold, your house is left to you desolate. Christ was really only confirming something that Yahweh had long ago prophesied through Daniel in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. Here I shall repeat Daniel 9, 24 to 27 once again, which is commonly considered to be Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy concerning the advent of the Messiah. Verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city, this is Yahweh talking to Daniel, to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins. Sin ended because the law ended, because it was fulfilled in Christ. Yahweh does not impute sin to the children of Israel. That doesn't mean, as Paul teaches in Romans, that we should sin. It means all the more that we should not want to sin. That we should, as he says in Romans 3, uphold the law all the more. And to make an end of sin and to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness. All the children of Israel shall be saved. And to seal up the vision and the prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. 69 weeks. 83 and a half years. Oh, I'm sorry, 483 years. The street shall be built again in the wall, even in troublous times, and after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. At the end thereof shall be with the flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. And he shall, meaning the prince, shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, and for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. The fact that all of these things came to pass in not more than 40 years after the crucifixion, a very symbolic time period in the Bible, is further proof that Christianity is indeed the world's only spiritual truth. 
Christ then exclaimed, as it is recorded in the last verse of Matthew chapter 23, For I say to you, by no means may you see me from now until you should say, Blessed is he coming in the name of Yahweh. But his triumphant march into Jerusalem had already happened prior to this statement. He can't be referring to that, and therefore those words must have yet another fulfillment, because they still have not been spoken. They are only uttered by Christians as a hope for the near future. Daniel's 70 weeks, it could be established, there's, there's chronologies on Christogenia that, that um, explain it fairly well. It could be established that that period of time started approximately 457 B.C., when, in fact, Jerusalem was finally built after many delays in its building, troubles in the Persian Empire, which controlled Jerusalem at the time. If we count the 69 weeks, 483 years, we come to, within a year, the time when Yahshua Christ was baptized in the River Jordan, the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, according to Luke. That had to be in the fall of 29, I believe it is, or 28, 28, the fall of 28 AD. Three and a half years from that brings us to the spring of 33 AD, when I believe the crucifixion took place, or maybe it was the spring of 32 AD. Um, um, this is off the top of my head. It's from my notes. And those notes and the accurate dates are supplied on Christogenia.org in a paper called Daniel 70 Weeks. You'll find it on a discussion menu at the top of the website under the banner. And I'm looking for it. I know it's there. But I can't find it. But that's okay. I know it's there. It's also on the menu on the lower right-hand corner, on the lower right-hand side. Under other stuff, and I believe under miscellany, find Daniel 70 weeks explained there. To the year. And upon his being seated in the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, they questioned him by themselves. Peter and Jacob and John and Andrew. Tell me, when shall these things be? And what is the sign when all these things would be about to be accomplished? Mark and Luke, as we see here in Mark, each recorded only two of the three questions which we see that Matthew recorded. Matthew distinctly recorded three questions. When shall these things be, in reference to his statements concerning the destruction of Jerusalem, which we just saw, and which we saw that Daniel also foretold? What is the sign of your coming, in reference to the ultimate return of the Christ, and of the consummation of the age, in reference to Christ's many statements which he made 
concerning the end of the age, or world, as the King James Version has it, such as at Matthew 13:40, and the parable of the wheat and the tares, where Christ says that, Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, thusly it shall be at the consummation of the age. This is not to say that Mark's or Luke's Gospels conflict with Matthew's Gospel. We should only observe that Mark's and Luke's accounts are from different perspectives, and facts were remembered differently. Note that Mark describes only four apostles engaged in this dialogue with Christ, and that's a fact which Matthew and Luke both omitted. One person remembers three parts of the event out of perhaps three or four or five or more, and another person either remembers or feels it only matters enough to record perhaps only two or three parts, or three parts of a four-part event where one of those parts is not recorded by the first person who related an event. That is not a discrepancy. Rather, it is human, and it happens all the time when various people recollect the same event. We may have parts of an event of an event that we can label A, B, C, D, and E, and one person recalls and records only A, C, and D, while another person records B, D, and E. Both accounts are true, yet neither account is complete by itself. That is the nature of the gospel accounts. And we must always keep that in mind, especially when the scoffers say, Well, what about this? And and it's like that over there. Well well, that, that accounts for it. That's why it happened. And we can see that. Just make up a story and repeat it to a few people, and you'll see that in action. It happens all the time. The apostles could not have known that the answers which Christ gives to these questions would describe separate events which would occur many years apart from each other, thousands of years. They imagined the end of Jerusalem to mark the end of the age and the return of Christ. They couldn't imagine those being separate events thousands of years apart. Many Christian preterists hold that same errant conclusion today. Christ did not clarify the matter for us, giving one long discourse and a single answer to three distinct questions. It is a challenge for us to sort it out, and it must be said that none of us are going to be able to do so clearly. Mark 13, verse 5. Then Yahshua began to speak to them, Watch that not anyone would deceive you. Many shall come in my name, saying that I am he, and they shall deceive many. Matthew 24, 4 has, And replying, Yahshua said to them, Watch lest anyone should deceive you. For many shall come by my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they shall be deceived many. Luke 21.8, same account. And he said, Watch that you are not deceived, for many shall come by my name, saying, I am, and that the time has come near. You should not go after them. In the first few centuries of Christianity, many men were preaching false Christs, meaning that they were attributing teachings to Yahshua Christ, which he did not actually intend for us, which he did not teach, which he did not say, false gospels, false epistles, 
but it is not evident in the records, which we have, that any of them were actually claiming to be Christ. There's a huge difference. Yes, there was Apollonius of Tyana, who was probably only a Neo-Pythagorean philosopher, but much of what is related about him comes from a century later from a biographical novelist named Philostratus. Any emendations of fanciful writers of tales from the 4th century and later? They are not really of an actual historical version of the life of Apollonius of Tiana. There were also several minor, would-be, often labeled Messiah figures in Jerusalem around the time of Christ, such as Judas the Golanite, who is described by Josephus, but who Josephus describes was really just a tax protester. He was never called a Messiah. Wishful thinking Jews would like to label him that today, as if to discredit the Christ. None of these would-be Messiah figures fits the circumstances which Yahshua Christ relates here. Here, Yahshua tells us specifically that many would come claiming to be him, and that has not happened until this present era. So this, so this prophecy cannot be related to anything from before 70 A.D. It blows the preterists out of the water. The preterists are wrong. In the present era, over the last two centuries, there have been many figures specifically claiming to be the Christ, meaning an advent or a recarnation of Jesus, of Yahshua Christ. Among these are the Korean, the Korean clown named Sung Myung Moon, another Korean named An Sang Hong, Marshall Applewhite, Jim Jones, Bahalula, or whatever the hell that name is, and a host of several dozens of other assorted freaks. Some of them have hundreds of thousands of followers. Therefore, if this prophecy can only be seen to have been realized in more recent times, because there is no such attestation of its having happened in the early centuries of Christianity, then this entire discourse must also be applicable to these more recent times, as well as what obviously applies to the past and the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. In other words, Christ's answers to all three of these questions posed by the apostles must be in and throughout this entire discourse. Mark 13, verse 7. But when you, sh but when you should hear of wars and reports of wars, do not be troubled. It needs to happen, but not yet is the end. For nations shall arise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There shall be earthquakes in various places. There shall be famines. These are the beginning of travails. Matthew 24, 6-8 reads nearly identically to this, but Luke 21, verses 9-11 read thusly. But when you hear of wars and disturbances, you should not be scared, for it is necessary that these things come first, but not immediately is the end. 
Then he said to them, Nation shall arise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There shall be both great earthquakes and famines and plagues in various places. There shall be terrors and great signs from heaven. First, we see in Luke's version that there is the additional clause concerning great signs from heaven. It is impossible to quantify such a prophecy until it happens. It was demonstrated many months ago when I covered Revelation chapter 8 here, that there really was a year when the sun and moon were notably less bright right at the same time that matches the historic prophecy surrounding Revelation chapter 8, verse 12, as recorded by the ancient historian Procopius, circa 530-540 AD. So with this also, a literal fulfillment cannot be ruled out. Repeating Mark 24, 7, but when you should hear of wars and reports of wars, do not be troubled. It needs to happen, but not yet is the end. For nation shall arise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There shall be earthquakes in various places. There shall be famines. These things are the beginning of travails. The period from about 27 B.C., five years perhaps, before the birth of Christ, to 180 AD, was described by the great Roman historian Gibbon as the Pax Romana, and many other historians have followed suit. The Roman peace. Aside from the border wars in Germany and in Parthia, the conquest of Britain, which is relatively minor at the time, under Claudius in the fifth and sixth decades of the first century, and the war in Judea from 65 to 70 A.D., the seventh decade, and the battles for succession as emperor, 68 through 70 A.D., aside from those skirmishes and small battles, there was relative peace throughout the Roman Empire for 200 years, the Pax Romana. None of these events leading up to destruction of Jerusalem could meet the description given by Christ here, that you are going to hear of wars and reports of wars, and that nation shall arise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, since none of the events could be seen, that none of the events which actually happened in this period could be seen as extraordinary in life under Roman rule. Most Roman citizens during this period lived in peace most of the time. Yet while we have always had war in some degree, over the past 200 years we have never had so much war, ever, as we have had recently. And while it seems remote to us now, only 70 years ago, 63 million people died in World War II alone, where practically every single nation on earth was involved. And Christ says that not yet is the end. And while we have not had a lot of famine in white Adamic lands lately, we saw 20 million Ukrainians and Russians, at least, die from famine during the Stalin regime. On a much smaller, smaller scale, on a much smaller scale, many people died from starvation during the Dust Bowl and Depression era here in North America. Many more Europeans died due to famine and disease in post 
World War II Europe. It was actually a famine organized by certain elements in France, which enticed the common people into supporting the famous revolution, which initiated the modern era. Now, we can't really say that it won't happen again, but there have already been many wars, many reports of wars, nations, whole groups of entire nations rising against whole groups of entire nations and kingdoms against kingdoms. And we've already seen many great famines. Christ certainly seems to be talking about the time of the end of the age here. And this description very well fits that age in which we live today. The past hundred years have seen the deaths of a hundred million Christians at the hands of Satan, the Jewish people. Mark 13, 9. But you watch out for yourselves. They shall hand you over to the councils, and you shall be beaten in the assembly halls, and you shall be made to stand before governors and kings because of me for a testimony to them. And in all the nations it is necessary for the good message to be proclaimed in all the nations. All the nations, not just any nations. For the good message to be proclaimed. And when they bring you, handing you over, do not practice beforehand what you should say, but that which should be given to you at that hour, that you shall say. For it is not you who are speaking, but the Holy Spirit. And brother shall hand over brother unto death, and father child. And children shall rise up against parents, and shall slay them. And you shall be hated by all on account of my name, but he abiding to the end, he shall be saved. Preserved. Today, the only people in the world who can honestly claim to be hated by all are true white Christians. The only Christian religion that breaks up families and marriages is Christian identity. No other form of Christianity destroys families and marriages, period. It is doubtless that there were persecutions of Christians instigated by the Jews in the years leading up to the Roman destruction of Jerusalem. But those persecutions also continued long after the destruction of Jerusalem, all the way to the 4th century A.D., but his prophecy cannot relate to the first century alone. Again, it blows preterism out of the water. And since it is talking more specifically in anticipation of the time of the end of the age, it cannot really be referring to the early Christian persecutions at all, although they are a part of the overall picture. Many of the apostles and their followers were slain on account of the Jews in the years leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem, but the persecution of Christians certainly did not end there. During the French Revolution, for the first time in Europe, we saw an organized slaughter of the clergy and an organized slaughter of Christians in general. While it is without doubt that the Catholic clergy was vastly rich and powerful, 
the reaction against them was not a turn to Protestantism at this time. Rather, it was a, an attempted de-Christianization of France and the organization and institution of an atheist state religion. This was accompanied by an emancipation of the Jews in France. Imagine that. By the fruits of a revolution, its true instigators were fully revealed. The Christian clergy and Christians in general have been persecuted in every revolution since the French Revolution. And all of these revolutions have been inspired and organized by Jews. The only reason that Christians have not really been persecuted here in America is that most Christians in America are now so-called Judeo-Christians. They are therefore not really Christians at all. Instead, they are whores for the Jews. It was not that way during the first decades of our nation's history. Now, every once in a while, when anyone, especially a true white Christian, seeks to uphold true Christian values or morals, we see that the tyrannical government steps in to squelch them. And so the true nature of our governments, as they are now, is revealed. They are all tools for Satan. Today, there have been many court rulings against Christians in the United States, and especially in Europe, and especially in Britain. Therefore, we cannot rule out the possibility of still further persecutions of Christians right here in our own so-called Christian nations, if and when the government tyranny feels threatened by Christians. Today, some government officials have already slanderously characterized certain Christians as terrorists and enemies of the state, and for no good reason. We can't forget that the Catholics, while they may have been Christians of a sort, not really, in order to maintain their power over Christendom, had already slaughtered many of their own Protestant brethren. In Germany, the Thirty Years' War of the Romish Church, the war against Protestantism, killed half of the adult men of Germany, three-tenths of the overall population, and also a third of the Czechs. France, under the Medici rule, persecuted the Huguenots, killing many thousands of them. All this can be attributed to the Jews. This is the fulfillment of those who sought the word of God in the opening of the little book described in Revelation chapter 10. In a great way, we can see a major fulfillment of the verses here in Mark 13, 9 through 13, in the Reformation and its aftermath, but simply because the Reformation is perceived as having come to a close, that does not mean that those same forces are not at work today. But today we see that the daughters of the Reformation, those various Protestant church organizations which ultimately sprung from it, have again totally fallen under the sway of the same powers who had once persecuted their founders, the Jewish money powers. Of course, the true Christian should know that vengeance belongs to Yahweh our God and should never want to run into confrontations with the governments of this world which we cannot ever win anyway. Yet no true Christian should ever want to deny Christ or the truth of the gospel. Whenever it comes down to the two, Christians must choose allegiance to Christ. Christ said, 
as we see it in Mark 8.38. For whoever should be ashamed of me and my words among this adulterous and sinful race, also the Son of Man shall be ashamed of him when he should come in the honor of his Father with his holy messengers. This was also recorded in Luke 9.26 and was a sentiment often uttered by Paul in his epistles. At 1 John 2.28 we read, And now, children, you abide in him, that if he should appear, we would have free spokenness and would not be dishonored by him at his presence. If you know that he is righteous, you also know that each who is practicing righteousness has been born from awe of him. Christians should not ever be dissuaded from the gospel and the commandments of Christ. So if persecutions of Christians do come here, and indeed they may come yet, we must see that we must do our best to abide them and to remain in our faith. Again, at Mark 13, 13, Yahshua says, And you shall be hated by all on account of my name, but he abiding to the end, he shall be saved. Likewise, Matthew 24, 13 through 14 states this, But he who endures to the end, he shall be preserved. And this good message of the kingdom shall be proclaimed in the whole inhabited earth for a testimony to all of the nations, and then shall the end come. Find this good message. Luke 21, 17 through 19 states, and you shall be hated by all on account of my name. Yet a hair from your heads shall by no means be lost. In your endurance you must gain your lives. Only we, Christianity, have that message that we're hated for. Nobody hates an evangelical Christian. Nobody hates a Baptist. People just think they're fools. We have many other promises that all Israel shall be preserved, that all of the seed or offspring of the children of Israel shall be saved, as Isaiah says, and as Paul says. But we are not all tried in the same manner. We have not all been forced to choose between life and death on behalf of Christ. So this promise that he who endures unto the end, he shall be preserved, must indicate something else. That only those of us who are destined to face such a trial must live up to it. Here is Revelation chapter 14, verses 9 through 12. And another, third messenger, followed him, saying with a great voice, If one worships the beast and its image, and receives an engraved mark upon his forehead or upon his hand, then he shall drink from the wine of the wrath of Yahweh, which is poured unmixed into the cup of his anger. And he shall be tormented in fire and sulfur before the holy messengers and before the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends for the eternal ages. And they who worship the beast in its image, and one who receives the engraved mark of its name, shall not have rest day and night. Thus is the patience of the saints, they keeping the commandments of Yahweh and the faith of Yahshua. Now this passage is in the context of the aftermath of the fall of Babylon which we see in verse 8. So it cannot be taken out of that context. Here we see that if Babylon's fall, those who worship the beast shall be punished with the wrath of God. Some of us are tried in faith, and we are destined for a higher reward when we overcome our trials. Some of us worship the things of this world, 
and we shall be punished with the wrath of God, and that is our trial. All of us, if indeed we are Israelites, all of us are saints. As we see here in Revelation 14.12, where it speaks of those who face his wrath. Peter discusses the trial of fire in this life in his first epistle at 1 Peter 1.7, where he says that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Yahshua Christ. Paul states at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, from verse 12, Now if anyone builds upon that foundation gold, silver, precious stones, timber, fodder, straw, the work of each will become evident. Indeed, the day will disclose it, because in fire it is revealed. And of what quality the work of each is, the fire will scrutinize. If the work of anyone who is built remains, he will receive a reward. If the work of anyone burns completely, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be preserved, although consequently through fire. For those of us whose lot it is to face trials in this world because of our own disobedience, so be it. No one can do anything about it when we do not heed the call. But we who profess to know better should nevertheless do our best to pull our brethren out of the sins of the world when we can. James the Apostle said at the end of his epistle, My brethren, if one among you should stray from the truth, and one should correct him, you must know that he correcting a wrongdoer from the error of his way shall save his soul from death and cover a multitude of errors. When we see our brother in error, we have an obligation to pull him out of that error. When we see our brother tricked by a universalist, we have an obligation to warn him. See our brother following the wrong path, we have a Christian obligation to warn him. But for those of us destined to face trial on behalf of Christ, we must abide in our profession, not compromise. And in that, we shall gain our lives. Truth and an adherence to the gospel bear a greater responsibility. Revelation 13, 9 through 10 is but one passage which, which teaches us such predestination, where in Greek it says, if one has an ear, he must hear. If one is for captivity, into captivity he goes. If one is to be slain by the sword, he is to be slain by the sword. This is the patience and the faith of the saints. We must realize this, that Yahweh alone is sovereign. At Luke 12:41, Peter asks about a certain parable, and Yahshua answers him thus. Then Petrus said, Prince, to us do you speak this parable, or also to all? And Yahshua said, Who then is the faithful, sensible steward, whom the master appoints over his attendants, to give the allotment of grain at the proper time? Blessed is that servant who coming finds his master finds doing thusly. Truthfully I say to you, that he shall appoint him over all his belongings. But if that servant should say in his heart, My master delays coming. Well, he's not abiding to the end, is he? 
And he begins to beat the men servants and maid servants, then to eat and to drink and be drunken. The master of that servant shall arrive at a day which he does not expect, and at an hour which he does not know. And he will cut him in two, and he shall set his portion with the faithless. Now that servant, who knowing the will of his master, and not preparing or doing according to his will, shall be clubbed much. Right. You let a universalist get away with his universalist teachings, and you don't confront him. You know the will of your master, and you're not preparing or doing according to his will. That's your warning. You shall be clubbed much. But he knowing yet doing such worthy of blows, but he not knowing yet doing such worthy of blows, shall be clubbed little. There is lesser punishment in ignorance. All to whom much is given, much shall be sought from him, and to whom much is committed, far more shall be demanded of him. Will there be further persecutions of Christians? I would bet. The Jews, having come to the forefront of our society, persecute Christians whenever they get the chance. And if they have the opportunity again, they will openly persecute Christians just like they did in old Rome, and just like they did during all of the revolutions of Europe, during the Spanish Civil War. They were raping nuns. The Jews were raping nuns and killing Catholic priests, simply because they were nuns and priests. During the Bolshevik revolutions, they closed the churches, but they sure as hell didn't close the synagogues. We should certainly anticipate the possibility of further persecutions of Christians. Thank you for listening. I'll be back next week to finish Mark chapter 13, and hopefully Mark chapter 14. We'll see what happens when I make my notes. Praise Yahweh. God bless you all.